Hi, I'm Rod Murray, host of State of the Game, and you're listening to Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan on the Talkin' Golf Network. Visit www.talkandgolf.com for more quality golf podcasts. This is the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and Eric Iverson is my guest for episode 53. On more than one occasion, a person in the industry has told me that Eric Iverson is the most talented shaper and construction specialist in golf course architecture. He certainly had ample opportunity to demonstrate it, and the evidence is difficult to ignore. Iverson first spent over 15 years designing and building courses on his own and for others, including Perry Dye, before joining Tom Doak in Renaissance Golf Design in 2001. He worked under Doak on a number of projects that would eventually become some of the most highly rated courses of our era, and on some of the most majestic properties developed in the last 70 years. Cape Kidnappers in New Zealand, Barnboogle Dunes in Tasmania, Sabonic, Ballyneal, and Streamsong Blue were just a handful of the highly rated designs Iverson played a significant role in bringing to life. From there he went on to help create Dismal River, The Loop, Grand Sanamionese in Bordeaux, Taraidi in New Zealand, and is currently beginning construction at St. Patrick's, a new Lynx course in stunning Dewsland at Rossapenna in Northwest Ireland. The point I'm trying to make is, Iverson has been all over the world and played a linchpin role in imagining many of the world's most heralded and desirable courses. He played an expanded role as lead associate at Stone Eagle near Palm Springs, the now-defunct Simapo Island in China, and at Rock Creek Cattle Company in western Montana. Especially important was his lead work, shared with fellow Denver native Don Plasic, imagining and developing Common Ground Golf Course in his Colorado hometown. Common Ground is a fascinating design in one of the country's finest public courses, and should be a model for how any community can undertake an intelligent, cost-effective revitalization of its decayed courses. We talk about it more in the podcast. Over the last several years, Tom Doak has been quite vocal in publicizing and promoting the role Iverson and fellow associates Plasic, Brian Slonick, and Brian Schneider have played in the success of Renaissance design. All of them have been with him a minimum of 17 years. Nevertheless, it's great, I think, to get to hear Eric's extended thoughts on his experiences working with Doak and his personal ideas about architecture and the current moment. We had a typically deep conversation and covered a lot of ground, some of it common ground considering our shared Colorado upbringing, See what I did there? And I'm pretty sure that if you like the work of Tom Doak and the guys at Renaissance Design, you're going to be riveted to this discussion. So let's do this. I bring to you now, Eric Iverson. Let's get started, if you don't mind. Sort of like when you're on the driving range and you you know you kind of start hitting those half wedge shots at the nearest flag just to kind of get warmed up. I'm going to give you a, a word or a name, and just tell me what comes to mind. You don't have to keep it to one word or two. Just just whatever kind of comes into your mind when I ask you this or say this word to you. So the, so we'll start off with these these words. And the first one I'm going to throw at you is the word minimalism. What comes to mind when you hear that nowadays? The difference between minimalism and naturalism. Do is you what have I think a, of? Yeah, do you have a definition for naturalism? Because that's a, that's a sort of an open-ended word too. I use it all the time, but I know what yeah. I think about it. But what do you think? 
Um, I, w- I would just cite an example. Um, I think naturalism is closer, more closely identified with a style. And if you uh, perhaps would undo something that might be inherent to the site that maybe at one point during the, you know, the course of the site's life was altered a little bit, but has been kind of grown over for 50 years. You might change that so that it appears more natural. Whereas minimalism, if you take it, you know, the strictest definition is you do the least amount necessary to make good golf out of what's there. Right. So I think, I think naturalism may be just a little bit more tied to an aesthetic Mm -hmm. and minimalism is a philosophy, a methodology or an approach. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's it. There's um, on Twitter. I came across something that uh, a writer out of Chicago named Jason way wrote, and he was kind of breaking down uh, this in exactly the way, exactly the way you described it uh, versus how impactful are you uh, on, on the land when you build something versus how, natural or artificial does it look when you get done and he had a scale about it but we got into a discussion about that and 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 you described it exactly the way that i would have that naturalism is an effect it's something that it's a it's an end point that you're trying to reach in the design process and you may move three million you know cubic yards of earth to get there or none but it's it's the desired product i guess at the end of it Mm -hmm. do you think having a discussion about those these labels and this terminology is important or is this just something that uh, ultimately is irrelevant when you're looking at a golf course? Um, I tend to look at, you know, any course, uh, old or new, and, and just try to look at it, you know, just on its own merits and evaluate, you know, just how I feel about it and how I feel about the work without really passing judgment on whether or not the you know, stylistic, stylistically, if, if, you know, I don't, I don't judge the, the, uh, the choices, how to put that. I don't judge what style somebody might have chosen to go with as much as the execution once they made those choices. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's timely in that, um, it is a bit of a, it, I feel like it's a, there is a bit of a transition it's a really interesting time in golf right now because, uh, you know, it's a, it, in the digital age with, uh, between social media and just the, you know, the, everybody's walking around with a better camera than any professional photographer had 25 years ago in their pocket. Mm-hmm. So, so it's definitely more visual, um, than it has been before. So it's an interesting time to, to really, you know, I think, I think minimalism has been a, uh, is in in many ways has transitioned into naturalism, and I'm, I, I welcome a little bit of pushback on that personally. Restate that, expand on that a little bit. What do you mean by pushback? Uh, just just really taking a second, you know, pausing for a minute and just saying, is it really worth? Is it worth undoing something that's you know, purely natural. That's, that's just laying there. Like, uh, I'll give an example of, of an oddly shaped 
Dune in an otherwise, you know, fantastic natural setting where, you know, a bit of what stands out is just the, the, the horizon of a certain dune seems much flatter than what's around it when there's no evidence that anything happened uh, in the course of that dune's life to make it appear kind of flattish from the angle that, that we're looking at it. And yet, you know, there are, there are forces at work that would want to go in and because, because we're so, you know, and I, I don't, I say we in the collective people doing this work all over the world, we're so effective at, you know, covering our tracks and, you know, taking, taking the, taking the, whatever native material is off that dune, shaving it down a little bit. So it looks more cool and ties in better with this particular line or that particular line. That's part of the green complex. And then putting that all back together, uh, you know, it, it can be done. And as a collective, we're all really good at it, but, but, to me, that's that an example of where we're crossing the line, you know, from minimalism into naturalism. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, so I, I guess what you're saying, it sounds like what you're saying is, is some, some things are better just left alone in this desire to make everything blend in and look natural and, and pre-existing and, and, and weathered. It, sometimes designers go too far in trying to make it look you know, compose the picture too completely. And it might be okay to leave some abnormalities or some, some tell signs that not everything was, has been touched. Yeah. I think that's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to really put a bow on it. Um, or did I completely I just, mis- I just take your point? No, <laughs> no I, I mean, I, I definitely think you don't want to leave, you know, uh, another example of that would, would be, you know, if you're doing a restoration, let's say, or you're doing any work to an existing golf course, you know, you, you, you can't be leaving evidence of the old golf course in there just because it's more work, you know, or, um, you know, not tying in something that should be tied in. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all as much as I'm saying, um, it, it's a fine line. And if it were really, if it were really easy to pinpoint, then, uh, I think we wouldn't dance around it quite so much. It, it, you know, the line between naturalism and minimalism is a blurry one, and it's probably a little bit different for for everybody. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's just an interesting time right now. And uh, it, you know, when when uh, I just I just think it's an interesting time that uh, has a lot to do with digital photography mm-hmm. frankly a, a lot of times when you when someone says you know this is an interesting time it it it's a denotes that you know something could be in flux or, or there's you know like like an um inflection point where something might uh, transition into something else does it feel like to you like your business is at a point where something needs to to change a little bit mm, i'm not sure i don't I'm not certain anything needs to change from a design standpoint as much as just kind of continuing to evolve. Um, the one thing that I do think is a little scary and, uh, 
I, I put this in the context of everything to do with golf, not just architecture is, is there's just, you know, there's this drumbeat of, of, you know, this, this huge pressure to grow the game. And I kind of, I, I kind of feel maybe it's just cause I'm, I'm getting a little long in the, long in the tooth, <laughs> but, uh, I, I kind of feel like, uh, we went through a period of, of reasonably unnatural, uh, acceleration of the growth in the growth of the game. And that, uh, you know, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't need to grow so much and we don't need to do so many things in the name of growing the game as much as we need to, um, just promote its natural evolution. And it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to appeal to everybody and it may appeal to a few less people as, as the generations progress. But, but I don't think we need to, you know, start, start doing a lot of, you know, I guess it ties into my thoughts on minimalism versus naturalism. It's like at some point, you know, if you have to try too hard to accomplish the goal, then maybe you should take a second look at, at you know, what's the what is the best for for golf in the long term? Right. Yeah, I, I'm with you, and I I often th- thought and, and even written that you know I think golf would be better to almost retract for a little bit, a oh, bit, you know, step back, shed some. Uh, some bad habits and some loose weight correct itself if that's possible get get back to a, a wholesome point a concentrated point where uh it's it's in a naturally healthy state uh, getting smaller uh more leaner and then you know and then if people are people will be attracted to that naturally rather than going out and kind of adding this corona of people that are sort of into it and they're into it for various reasons that might not be healthy to the overall game and, and to golf course design as well. You put that much more uh, elegantly no, and succinctly than I did. That's, 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 that's exactly what I'm trying to say. It's yeah. like, you know, it, it was fine for 150 years without us, you know, trying to, trying to jam steroids down its throat and it's going to be fine when we're gone. I have no, no concern that golf will die. Golf's not going to die. Golf is always going to be there. How popular golf is that that will vary from time to time. And I, I think that you know the simplicity and the tranquility, you know, twenty years from now is going to be just a huge, hugely attractive to uh, people that could use a little bit of more of that in their lives. And from a design standpoint, I would say that you, uh, working with Tom and, you know, of course, Bill and Ben and some others, have shown architecturally what that there is a purity that can be gotten to in design when you shed all these uh, developmental elements and these commercial elements that were associated with golf courses for decades, and you strip that away and you get down to the land and a simple, pure form of golf as it existed, as you said, you know, hundreds of years ago. There's a real attraction to that, and you are responsible for kind of illuminating that and showing that to the greater public. Going back to this concept of minimalism and naturalism, what your work did was influence the entire field, and there were a lot of people who have now kind of switched gears and gotten onto the freeway of naturalism, not necessarily minimalism, but they're trying to, you know, so many golf courses now are striving to look natural 
more so than they did 20, 25, 30 years ago. That's kind of the, the current movement. So going back to that question, has that gone too far? Uh, do we need a little more uh, artificiality or something in golf courses? Not car paths and homes and, and other things, but just as far as like the design features. Is naturalism, has that phase run its course? It's hard to say that because it's such an attractive style of golf, and it is like elemental. It does make you feel at home and and, and close to that that scent, that soul of golf. But when everybody's trying to make their golf courses look like that, is you know that seems to me that 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 isn't built to last. That's a good question, and and you know I I would certainly uh, I would certainly point out that that uh, you know in the arms race of uh, in the arms race of naturalism, you know I, I've 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 been on the side of a of a well-stocked arsenal. I mean, we've done a ton of that work <laughs> yeah. over the years. So it's not like, uh, you know, uh, that, that you're not um, disavowing that altogether. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I think, I think to put it in, you know, to, to put it kind of in practical terms that, that, uh, you know, it's, it's easier to, to get your head around it is, uh, just the specifics of the site and, when I when I speak of that, it's less about the contour and more about just the the just the soils and the climate and what's around. And some properties lend themselves better to uh, where naturalism is really easy. I mean, when you're in the sand in a in a you know we were hovering around that that 40th parallel north or south, and you're in sand by the sea. It's like you know to do anything else would really be, you know, the opposite of minimalism. You'd be trying to force something that, that man, if you just, if you built something kind of Rainer-esque in the dunes in, you know, somewhere and you just let it blow around and, and uh, kind of rejuvenate in one season, it's going to be, you know, it, it's going to be headed towards that more natural appearance. So, I think it boils down to just just the choices. If you're working in, you know, if you're working in, if you're working in heavy soils in, you know, the middle of the country, and you're trying to do a bunch of frilly edge stuff with, you know, fescue lips and and a whole bunch of sand going on, then you're just kind of you're just kind of asking for it. So, I do think it varies greatly on just the choices made and. You know how they apply to to just the just the characteristics of the site. It's uh, yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> with the sites that your your company has has gotten, um, you're you almost obligated, you know, to to build golf courses the way that you do. Now you haven't always, you know, gotten those ocean dunesy, you know, seaside sites. So so I I know you'd love to. Um, you know, probably mix it up a little. I'm guessing you'd like to, you know, it, it's fun for you to get a project where you do have to build a little bit more. Yeah. Um, it is fun. And, and, you know, the, the thing that, that, uh, the fellows are just kind of wrapping up in Houston is a, is a great example of that. Yeah. Um, I love that as an opportunity, um, just to, just to do some different things. And it was really interesting, uh, just kind of being around Tom and in his involvement with with uh, Brooks Kepka down there, and 
um, his approach. Uh, I'll tell you, I was, I was a bit, um, uh, it was interesting. My first trip down there where we're, we're all just kind of walking around the golf course and it's, it's flat. It's, it's, it's a lot prettier than I expected in terms of, uh, just the native trees that were around and, and the vibe in that, in Memorial park is incredible. It is such a cool place just to be, whether you're playing golf or not, it's just got so much energy. Uh, that was really cool. So we were kind of ex- excited from that standpoint, but you're out on this, this, uh, this golf course that's gone through a couple of iterations and, um, the last version had these really large fill pads for, for the green sites that actually had a nice sense of scale, um, just in terms of how, how broad the landscape was and how large these pads were around the green that, uh, uh, you know, they, they looked pretty good. It, it helped the golf course kind of, it helped just differentiate, you know, just add a little contour around the greens and, you know, I thought, okay, that's, that's, that's a decent start. We've got these big chunks of dirt, you know, right at the green sites to work with. And, uh, Tom's, you know, Tom's original, Tom's mandate was we're going to do, we're going to do, uh, I don't like the, the greens are up because it's not good for watching golf. You know, it's not a very spectator, spectator friendly situation when all the greens are up a little bit. So I want the greens, I want them down smaller and we're going to, we're going to build 20 bunkers. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty starkly blank canvas when we're starting at Memorial park. And, uh, so that, so that challenge, uh, just to like come up with some interesting golf and, and, uh, you know, stuff that looks good. Uh, that was a really cool challenge. And, and my, you know, my mates, uh, Brian Schneider and Brian Slonick and I and Blake Conant was uh, a ton of help on that project and still is. Um, you know, we talked a lot about, wow, this is going to be a really interesting challenge. And, and uh, it was great fun. We embraced it and we all really love how it's turning out. Um, Don Mahaffey is well known to some of you listeners, some of your listeners probably. He's the yep. he's the builder along with Mike Nuzo down there, mm-hmm. who's basically been playing the role as the lead associate. And uh, so we did we did we did the shaping of uh, the features and the greens. And Don's guys are you know basically building the thing and and helping us finish it. We're finishing up the greens, and the and the product is. You know, we're all really happy with the way the golf course is turning out. Um, and, and in my own my own uh, reaction to it was just to go places that I've recently worked and going to work soon. And just like, well, I'll probably do without that bunker. I'll probably do without that bunker. Yeah, <laughs> so right. it, it was a really great experience um, to just to just kind of have that type of of. Uh, you know, a design philosophy to, to start out a project like that with. Have you, do you put any, any stock or any thought into how the golf course is going to be received when it, it's shown on television during the event? And I, what I think about is I, I think Trinity forest is one of the most interesting golf courses 
to watch professionals play just because of the way they have to think their way around it, the, the options that they have. But I think the common consensus is watching it on TV. It, it's not compelling. You know, I, you hear about people saying there's nothing to see. You can't see anything. The color's off. So it's not, it hasn't captured the public's imagination via the television. Uh, do, do you, have you thought about how Houston Memorial is going to uh, be observed through the television, high definition television? And do you even care about that? Will it, or will the, golf itself be compelling enough that people will, you know, enjoy it? Uh, no, we talked a lot about that. Um, and, and I know that property on Trinity Forest, but I've not seen the golf course finished. Um, and, I, and I think one of the differences with Memorial Park is, as I, as I mentioned, um, I, just, I just thought that the trees, that, it was overplanted for one, big surprise. Um, but once we, you know, started getting rid of the clutter, there were some beautiful old trees there. It's kind of, you know, there's a lot of loblolly pines. Uh, Post Oak is, this, is kind of the local, you know, that's, that's the, the really valuable uh, native tree there, as well as some live oaks and, you know, just a, f- a handful of other species that really make for a nice palette. So, you know, for the, for the conventional, you know, turn the tube on Sunday afternoon and watch the tour, viewer it's going to feel much more familiar than trinity forest did um or does just to me that that has everything to do with the fact that you know trinity forest was is a big open property that you know you weren't going to go out there and plant 500 trees you know and it's the same the same it's the same comment that a lot of people have about watching the open championship. Yeah. It's like, wow. You know, I I have people still tell me they know what I do for a living and they still, you know, are, are really surprised that I love links golf so much just because, you know, if they, if they're really not into golf and they don't understand the value of it, they can't get over what it looks like on TV. And, you know, I gave up on trying to explain, you know, the merits of why why it was such a higher form of the game you know decades ago <laughs> truly you have to yeah experience is everything <laughs> yeah. no amount of words can can convey what you know hitting shots in those conditions is like uh, so you mentioned uh, brian schneider brian slonick uh blake uh don mike Nuzo. one person you didn't mention and we're still in uh word association now so so here's the next one uh tell me what comes to mind when i say don Plasic. Partner, close friend, mm-hmm. uh, artistic soul. Um, I don't know how much you know about you know Don and I go back a long way. I know I, I knew that. Yeah, so that's where we're <laughs> yeah. going with this. Yeah, um, and and I didn't you know I didn't mention him in the in the context of of uh, Memorial Park because um, you know Don doesn't travel. You know he's he's not on the on the carousel like we all are, so it's, so it's a little bit different concept. But he's uh, you know no less a part of our kind of our collective uh, creative jam session, if you will, when we're mm-hmm. talking about you know an approach to a project or um, you know looking at work we've done. You know he still he does a lot of uh, he does a lot of consulting, so he still he still gets out. Uh, in the field a fair bit. Um, 
typically consulting at existing clubs, but he made the decision long ago when, when there was a void, uh, that needed to be filled and just kind of, uh, you know, kind of running the company and fulfilling the needs of, you know, there, there is some documentation that you need there. There is, uh, you know, you need to do really nice looking, uh, renderings and artwork. There's a component of that that's, that's necessary. And, and at the time Don had a young family, it's, it's, something he loves to do and he's great at. And he made that decision a long time ago that, you know, he wasn't going to, uh, put his family through what we put our family through and, uh, fill that need that the company had, um, in, in Traverse city. And, you know, he, he's, uh, he's been a huge part of our company throughout, even though, uh, you know, he doesn't get the same type of, uh, he doesn't get the same type of recognition because he's he's not out there on the odd day when someone will show up and you know tour the course and right. have a great time and you know be kind of be part of the part of the story. We'll get into some of your background in, in a little bit, but let's let's do one more word association. Um, Rock Creek Cattle Company. One of the loves of my life. That was a really, uh, excuse me, that was a really, um, it was a poignant time in my life. Uh, there was a lot going on, um, nearly all positive, but, but not, not everything. It was, it's arguably the, the best natural contour that anybody has had to work with that wasn't sand or at least gravel. It was, it was, it's basically just very raw glacial (laughs) deposits. The whole, the whole property is just made of giant boulders arranged and tightly packed (laughs) into fantastic terrain for golf. So it was so much fun to work on. It was so, uh, such a rewarding it was just such a beautiful place to be even in the midst of construction when it seems like there's just a mountain of work just you know it 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 could be overwhelming um the amount of rock that there was to deal with just to really just to not do anything that's not you know clearing out clearing out the rock and building a green site you know that's 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 done on a fairly regular basis. That's not that big a deal. But to not have a single fairway where you where the contour is fantastic and you can't just you know you can't just kind of knock down the roughest edges and and let it be what Descri- it was. Describe the process of of removing all these rocks from the site, at least from the parts that you were building on. Well, it it became pretty apparent uh, after about. Uh, you know, we built, we had built about three holes. Um, we weren't going to grass anything that fall. So we just kind of got a nice, comfortable start seeing where we're, you know, uh, seeing where we were kind of headed with the thing. And it's always great to get a head start in the fall when you have an eye towards, uh, finishing the next summer. And, uh, you know, when it came time to, okay, we really like the hole. Now it's time to, 
you know, we need to irrigate it and get ready to grass it. It became pretty clear that by the time you made it possible to put irrigation in and, uh, you know, get the rock out of the top, we ended up kind of having a custom built root rake, but for rock, um, with like inch and a quarter steel teeth on a really large excavator. And we basically combed the entire golf course free of, you know, any rock. I think the spread was probably eight inches. Mm. So basically there would be these pyramids of rock 20, 30 feet high. You know, the, the, there's a, I have a picture of the, the uh, third holes of par five. Yeah. Beautiful hole heads kind of back up the hill. And, uh, just, just the pyramids of rock that were, I don't know, 20 feet high, 30 feet wide. And, you know, six or seven of them, uh, just to, you know, you, you, there was talk about, you know, sand capping. And of course you could, you know, you throw that out and you can imagine Tom's reaction. No, we're not doing that. I think had there been a decent sand source that was affordable, you know, if, if that had been the best solution, then, you know, that we would have done that. But uh, not to mention all the difficulties, you know, that just involves a lot of tying in. And it just came apparent we're just going to have to comb all the rocks out of this thing and, and uh, put it back together. I imagine that's a pretty expensive proposition to do all that work. It was. It was. Uh, yeah, it was a huge expense. I mean, luckily it did kind of dovetail into some other things that were going on uh, with the development as a whole in terms of places to, you know, in the big deep, uh, they called them kettles. Um, but in the deep, big deep pots and kettles out there, we would find, you know, three, four feet of topsoil in the bottom of this area that, you know, say it's 20, 30,000 square feet. Um, so you did find some banks of, of topsoil, but you still had the problem of getting rid of the rock. Um, and they actually have a, there's a, there, it's a big enough development with all the, the roads that needed to be built. There was, there's a quarry out near the interstate. Um, you have to look for it, but you can see it that they basically mined all the, all the gravel out to build all the roads and, building pads and you know it's a it was a pretty large operation and it kind of gave us a spot to to get rid of some of the rock as well mm -hmm. so rock creek is in western montana it's um kind of up in the foothills with great views it's near a town called deer lodge what are were you involved do you get involved in the routing process on on a site like this because one of the things that, that that's really remarkable about it is it is it canvases such a large area i mean it's a truly an epic journey when you're out there and walking around or i guess riding if you want to but you know you you see so many different pieces of landscapes and you you spin out through a prairie then you kind of climb up to the highest point through these ridges and forested area and then you come back down again and you finish up by the river it's i mean it's just like an epic endeavor well, so my question is like, obviously the routing of that was was key because there, when you have a property that size, I'm imagining you have an endless array of of options and places that you can go and sequences that you can order. So, so what was your involvement in in the in the routing process and just kind of, you know, maybe you can kind of explain uh, why that routing works the way it does. 
Yeah. One of the great things about working for Tom is that he does involve those around him in the routing process. Um, he's, he's gifted at it and it's not like, uh, you know, he doesn't, uh, he certainly doesn't relinquish control, you know, very easily, but just as when we're, just as when we're building, uh, building holes, he hears everybody out. I think it's one of his great strengths that a lot of people might not realize is that whether it's the greenest intern or somebody that's been doing, doing the work for 30 years, he gives everyone's idea enough weight to discount it, uh, see if it, it might have some merit. And, uh, if so, work with whoever came up with that to kind of nurture it along. And I think that's true of, of, uh, in some, some form that's true of every great architect realizes early on that, you know, you don't want to be stuck with coming up with every idea for an 18 hole golf course. You just not, it's just not going to be as good as if you, uh, take input from others and, and refine it from there. So at Rock Creek, uh, the challenge really there was to, you know, he had a section, one of the holes he loved early was uh, the 10th hole. And that, that's that's fairly common just in looking at the map and looking at the site. You know, he, he, he might find uh, a hole or three, a, a little section that he really feels strongly about how it works and, you know, you, you, and that's true of everybody. You, you find something that you think is, you know, you just give it more weight because you feel it's really important and you work from that. So um, that was at a pretty high elevation based on where our client and his guys felt that, you know, the best place for kind of the, the campus was down on the creek where it is now. So that's some elevation to deal with. Um, and so the challenge was, tacking your way up there so the walk wasn't too arduous. Um, so one of the things that we ended up doing was, you know, giving up on a couple of holes in that bigger terrain up high in exchange for the first kind of heading out. The first and second, surprisingly, I don't recall the number, but it's 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 shocking how much how much elevation you pick up just in those first two holes hmm. and they don't feel hugely uphill, Not really. but, but relative to, you know, one, two, and three relative to, uh, 18 green, I'd be surprised if it's, you know, less than 75 feet. Um, so that's a pretty good way to knock out some climb, uh, in a pretty comfortable walk before you get into the bigger, uh, you know, those bigger roles where you're, where you're clearly, you know, gaining some elevation as you go up. Um, so those are the types of things where, uh, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll very, very commonly send one to all of us, depending on who's going to be able to, you know, go with him on these early trips. Um, he'll send a map and, you know, just with some general, you know, we think, uh, you know, we think we're starting out from here. Um, you know, maybe just a few, a few givens that, you know, he thinks are, 
are, you know, pretty much these, these items are not going to change and, uh, you know, just have a go and see, see what you come up with. And, you know, we, we, we kind of, we don't, we don't rush to, uh, we did at one point because you can imagine we're all young and got that opportunity. So of course we, we all cranked out these, what we thought were awesome golf courses and we're, you know, super anxious for, for him to look at them. And, Mm -hmm. and really, you know, as we've all kind of gotten a little more experience, it's like, you know, you have, you have the, you know, the holes that you found and there's a time when he'll either ask for, you know, did you find anything interesting with this section or what don't you like about where we are so far, that type of stuff. And that's the time you say, well, you know, one thing, one thing that I kind of liked was X, Y, and Z. And I don't know if that's of any help, but uh, I think it's worth looking at. And, you know, that's, that's a really, it's a really fulfilling part of the, uh, of the process because, you know, he does, like I said, he, he's, he's a master at, at routing golf courses, but he's also smart enough to know that, that, uh, you know, part of the process is, is one of elimination Mm. and, uh, you know, that's, he's, he's, he, he, his, uh, you know, he, he works with a faster processor mentally than, than a lot of us do. So he's really quick to, uh, uh, you know, you'll hear, you'll hear him say a lot of times, yeah, I already thought of that, but doesn't really, (laughs) doesn't really fit because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, and it's no BS. I mean, he, he, he'll, he'll have not just the, you know, already thought of that and ruled it out, but he'll tell you why he ruled it out. And it's like, Oh yeah, I guess that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but yeah, it's fun. And, uh, so I, I did uh, get to contribute a little bit at rock Creek and, um, you know, that was, that, that, that you just, you know, that, that made it, uh, just added to what a, what a rewarding project that was to work on. What's your favorite part of the golf course? Um, favorite part of the golf course. Um, you can answer that however you want, but yeah. you know, there, it does take you yeah. through different scenes and, and there are all these little, you know, nooks and then there's some open spaces and just, it mm-hmm. changes character several times. It does change character. I, I think maybe that's the way I think it's those, those parts, you know, three green to me was, uh, is, is the transition in my mind from one part of the terrain to the other. Yeah. It gets, a little, it gets you know, your you legs will burn tell, after that. Yeah. You can just tell from three green, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good climb up to four T mm-hmm. it's a pretty good climb up to four fairway. And, uh, you just get into that. That's when you really get into that, what I call the, you know, the big stuff, the big contour up there that there's certainly those holes are more dramatic, but, uh, you know, that, that kind of, uh, you sense on three that transition is coming and uh, the green sites just sighted really nicely in there. I think it's great. And you know, that, that, that feeling when uh, you know, if you don't try to drive the green on, on 15 and uh, you know, that, that green just sits up on that natural ridge line and the, you know, the space behind it is probably a mile and a half to that next layer of mountains and you just know you're about to bust out of the out of the big stuff out into more of the the sagey um you basically do get out of all the glacial deposits and out into more of the chalky sagey uh cedar 
type ground that has a beauty all its own and you're next to the creek. So that's another transition that I, I really like. It's almost, you know, it's almost like a, a too much. There's such a bounty of, of flavor in that <laughs> landscape. And, you know, that's, that's got to come into your design process and like, okay, how do we maximize like all of, all of this, this cornucopia of goods that we have? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, to that point, to that point, I think it was really interesting and it's been ongoing. Um, if there was ever a knock on that golf course, there were, there were people that, uh, uh, you know, there were people that, that didn't really like the 18th hole. Um, and for a number of reasons that I've heard, but I think primarily the reason was that the rest of the golf course goes over such dramatic terrain and the 18th just played up uphill along the, along rock Creek. The ground was just really quiet there. It wasn't part of all that crazy rolly, uh, glacial stuff. And I felt like strategically it was, you know, it, it definitely was one of the best holes out there because you had to you had to take some risk off the tee to get to a good spot to nudge it up near the green, and even if you didn't, you had to hit a really bold second to get into a spot where you could hit kind of up into the slope of the green. So I thought a lot of the, you know, I felt a lot of what was a really good strategic hole was lost in the fact that it didn't have all the jazz yeah. that the rest of the course had, even though when you're standing on the tee, you're looking at that entire mountain range usually has snow on it until, you know, mid July and you have rock Creek running the length of the hole. It was the topography that I think everybody missed and felt like, you know, it wasn't just, it just wasn't exciting. It was a letdown. And I, and I think that kind of, that kind of goes to, you know, do you, do you think, do you think, do you like golf courses better when, when the, when the crescendo is at the end or, or do you like it, you know, where, where things kind of, uh, really peak out 15, 16 and, you know, it's just kind of a comfortable, nice landing that you come in for. Um, so I think that flavors it a lot for, for some people, um, and we've since worked on that hole a little bit. Uh, one of the reasons the, the green ended up where it did was that uh, Tom was very respectful throughout the building of it originally to not just to not overdo the creek component of it and not you know go into this beautiful landscape in in the wilds of Montana and put a bunch of golf greens right on top of this you know this beautiful stream and. Uh, the 18th there was a nice little corner in the in the creek but all that ground uh, around the corner was was going to be wetland for sure and it was going to set the project back to year just to you know kind of have the green tucked around the corner um fill in a wetland to get that done and and so you know he avoided that and we built a really nice hole since then uh that wetland mitigation was kind of a drop in the bucket in terms of what else happens in in montana it wasn't very much space they 
they really wanted to 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 move that green around the corner and uh, we rebuilt that green and it's 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 more dramatic it's fun it's still you know a comfortable finish we didn't change the rest of the hole um but we did move the green and uh i hope that uh i hope the people that that really hated the old 18th hole like this one a little bit better but we'll see it always seemed uh just kind of observing tom's comments and maybe even listening to you now that that he and maybe possibly you kind of feel that rock creek doesn't you know, maybe get the credit it deserves amongst your other work, which is kind of a hard thing for you guys to say because mo- almost everything you build is, you know, uh, considered some of the greatest golf that's, you know, been built in, in 80 years. But it, it does seem that there's a, maybe a feeling that Rock Creek is, is slightly underappreciated for how good you guys think it is. Um, maybe. I, I think a lot of that just has to do with time and frankly a lot of it has to do with timing um you know if you end up if you book a trip there and i once told larry lambrecht uh who's a pretty famous photographer yeah uh he was taking pictures of our courses for for the longest time and i'm going off my one-year experience um you know the wildflowers uh when i was out the first spring that we worked there were just fantastic in in uh the middle of may and there was snow on the peaks. We had this run of, you know, 70 degree days. Uh, the, the native just kind of came alive and the whole place was just magical, you know? So I said, man, you should, you should look at if, if you can get there kind of mid to late May, boy, it was really pretty then. And, uh, so he books this trip from, you know, he's up, up in Connecticut or Rhode Island. So he's out there <laughs> and it snowed about eight inches. So <laughs> not, you know, you're not going to wait that one out. That's just, no, a, that's, no. that's just a rebook. So, um, so yeah, a lot of people can get there when, you know, if it's not sand. So if it's been a rainy week and it's playing, you know, it's playing soft and slow, it's not, it's not like on sand where you, you can, you, you can, you can, it can rain an inch and a half at Bandon and if, you know, a little bit of breeze and, all that sand, you're really getting, you know, you're experiencing those golf courses as they're meant to be. Mm-hmm. Rock Creek, Rock Creek, and other places like it that are a little more that that don't have the sand are a little bit more dependent on on good timing. You know, yeah. When when we opened that thing, Isaac Farabaugh had a he was the golf course superintendent and the basically the construction manager of that project and had I learned a ton from Isaac and was just great at what he did but you know we all showed up and we're like jesus this thing might be too fast because it is you know it, it's pretty severe and he had, had that place just screaming and the balls were going everywhere the greens were firm and super fast and was like man it was it was like a roller coaster um but it was peaking at the right time at the right time of year and you know I, I do think some some places that are hard to get to, it's a one off it's a one off shot. And if you go for two days of golf and it's soft mm-hmm. and yeah. sticky, that that's hard to get over. So, so I, I think it gets its due. It, it'll it'll continue to kind of get its due over time. Where did you stay when you were working on that course? Well, it's funny, <laughs> funny. Uh, um, Bill Foley, our client, 
had built a couple of cabins. Um, he had built a couple of cabins for himself and the other investors to stay on this little, you know, one of the little sections of, of the ranch called uh, the Spring Ranch. Beautiful little pond, you know, built these two cabins that I'm sure were, you know, they're, they're million-dollar cabins. So Tom's like, yeah, well, you know, the guys can just stay in the cabins while we're, while we're building the course. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we, we go, we go up. The, I showed up there, um, you know, just to kind of get started. And I talked to the ranch manager and I'm like, so, uh, where am I staying tonight? And, you know, Tom had mentioned some about us just staying in the cabins and he's like, uh, let me give Bill a call. <laughs> and so, so he calls Bill and, and Bill's like, um, the cabins are for the investors, uh, <laughs> not the hired help. <laughs> That's right. So, so we had uh, we ended up in uh, we called it the bunkhouse um, at the home ranch, um, which basically was just kind of what it sounds like, um, just this kind of old ranch house with a humongous kitchen to feed twenty cowboys during. Uh, you know, during their big season when they're, um, you know, they're, they're doing all the, they're doing all the castrations, frankly, that's a big operation up there. Um, so yeah, we stayed in the bunkhouse with all of us kind of in there. And then, and then occasionally the, you know, one of, one of the, one of the guys from the ranch would roll in there with his spurs on at, uh, five in the morning, go into the back, you know, it had a walk this, this, house with this huge kitchen had a walk-in freezer to feed everybody and a, and a walk-in cooler and he's you know getting a bunch of antibiotics for you know all the cattle that he's you know it's a working ranch and we were on their turf and uh you know we 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 got square with those guys right away kind of what the score was with the house it's like we we're just kind of guests in the house stay out of the way and uh uh, they were pretty cool too. Over, but but you can imagine, you know, hard ranch guys doing their thing in the middle of Montana, and a bunch of golf guys. <laughs> yeah, it took it took it's a while. Talk about it. A, took a while. Talk about a clash of cultures. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful what you fun. careful what you pull out of the refrigerator there. That's it. That's <laughs> Double it. check the label. <laughs> Double check the label. That's right. So you and I are, are both from Colorado. I think you're you're a few years older than I am, but I, I'm guessing we we kind of share some similar experiences growing up. Uh, you you grew up in Denver, right? That's right. Yeah. What part of Denver? Arvada. Okay. Little suburb, the first suburb, kind of northwest. Uh huh. I grew up in Longmont, so outside of Denver, but mm -hmm. front front range. That's our old stomping grounds. Did you yep. did you play golf uh, growing up? I did from. The, my earliest memories are like three years old with my dad and my older brother tagging along at the, on the par three course at Highland Hills. Oh yeah. And, and just basically playing out from, you know, just a one club, play it out from 10 yards off the green. And I just to cut down seven iron and chipped and putted with it. And then, uh, would, uh, just ride on the, you know, just kind of using the ball pocket as a saddle on the, on my dad's pole car. Nice. Who, who wasn't an avid golfer, by the way. Uh -huh. He was just a very kind of occasional, but he thought it was great for us. And, and he, uh, he spent time with, uh, 
all three of us at the time were kind of getting into it and just just getting us out there but it wasn't his bag at all but he did he did take us out from time to time and i pretty much just latched onto my older brother and all his friends and uh yeah, I was hooked early on. Yeah, so so where did you play mostly, or did you did you get around the the <laughs> city? I I grew up playing until about thirteen at Indian Tree, which yeah. I'm sure you know, uh-huh. and then uh, kind of made the transition up Wadsworth to uh, uh, my beloved Lake Arbor Golf Course, which is arguably the worst golf course in the entire Denver metro area. <laughs> But it has such a great cast of characters there. And one thing it always did have was really good greens. It had some of the best, you know, just some of the best putting surfaces, not design-wise, but it had really great greens. So it did have that element of, of uh, you know, that, that part of it was really enjoyable. And, uh, you know, the, the golf pro there was able to, to put me, put me to work, you know, probably at an earlier age when you're supposed to be, then you're supposed to be working at a golf course. But, um, I just love that. I wouldn't trade, I wouldn't trade that, that, that childhood, that part of my life for, for anything. It was such a great, such a great environment to grow up in. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, you know, the, and you know, public golf hasn't in, in in Denver has expanded out. There are some some newer golf courses around the edges and stuff. But but those old courses in the city, and not even that old, but there, there's a lot of them. They just haven't changed that much. And I, one thing I, your point about the greens is good. One thing I, t- I took for granted growing up, and now that I live down here in the southeast, is is how readily grass grows in that climate most places did have pretty good greens as i remember in the you know here in the summer we struggle and uh, with different grasses we struggle in the winter but colorado once summer comes along the conditions are usually pretty good for most of those golf courses they are i mean we 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 are definitely spoiled as a as a town as a region in terms of uh just conditioning and and some pretty fun golf courses that are affordable and um in good in good condition most of the time I, I tell people you know whether it's you know people from uh where i play now or just you know places i work in town maybe you know you hear the complaint that our handicaps don't travel and i i try to tell them it's like well we, we play at altitude the wind doesn't really blow the weather it's always sunny if it rains we don't we won't play in the rain because it's going to pass over in an hour yeah you know so it's like yeah your handicaps don't travel because every round you play and every round you post is fair under, weather golf yeah under ideal <laughs> conditions yeah yeah so if you're if you're a four in denver you're an eight in san francisco right and <laughs> <laughs> hey, just live with it <laughs> when i was growing up it seemed like uh, probably one out of every two or three golf courses was designed by Dick Phelps. Do, do you ever do you ever cross paths with him? He's one of these regional. You know, every town and every state has a, a regional architect who who kind of you know in the especially if they were building courses in the seventies and eighties, kind of dominates the market. And and ours in uh, the, on the Front Range and throughout Colorado really was a guy named Dick Phelps. But kind of a lot of neat little golf courses. Absolutely, and I, I don't know Dick. Well, at all, I believe we met when I was really young, but I do know Rick a little bit, his yeah. son, Rick, mm-hmm. and uh, Kevin Atkinson, and Kevin is, Atkinson his, right. is, is his partner. And they've, 
they've been doing uh, they've been doing a lot of cool stuff, and I'm not sure how much how involved Dick is anymore. But um, yeah, there there are some really cool holes at some at some cool places that that do kind of get overlooked just by virtue of the fact that that uh, you know Dick was really prolific over the years. Um, one of them that uh, you know the 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 front nine. The first nine holes at uh, a place called the Meadows, which is not far from where I live now. Mm-hmm. Um, some really, really cool use of just this kind of broad. Uh, it's not flat, but but certainly not undulating with with these interesting ravines that kind of cut through it. And I played there recently with my wife, and I and I I didn't do it. I, you know just lazy. Let's call it what it is. I didn't do it, but I, I wanted to kind of reach out to those two and just say, you know, you should call these guys at the meadows because you know, what's lying there, what, what you guys did whenever you did it is so cool. And they're so, you know, kind of misrepresenting it and, and not presenting what's there very well. It's like, man, it, it's, it's really, worth the time for someone to go in and say, look, you got to get this mode back out to here. And you, you, you know, you've, you've just got to present these holes in a different way and, and it'll just be inexpensive stuff, good for business and just make the golf better. So there, there are a lot of really, there's some really cool stuff around town that, you know, just kind of gets overlooked. Like it does a lot of places just out of, you know, yeah. familiarity, really. Yeah, exactly, and, and just kind of what the consumer, the, the taste level is, isn't as discerning maybe as it as it could be. And I, I think, yeah. <laughs> touching on what you said, is a, a lot of these things could be solved with the, just with a lawnmower, just kind of sp- you know cre- re- yeah. recapturing space. But grass grows so thick there that I think people in that area must love rough because there's so much of it on most golf courses. Well, it, it's just the, it's the same battle that you know, everybody listening to this and everybody that works, you know, doing what we do, it's like, it's the same battle throughout in that, you know, the, the default logic over the decades was that work from the center out. So the narrow fairways, you know, just grow the rough and, and that's how you really, that's what makes, you know, that what's, that's what makes for championship golf or, or good golf is narrow fairways and thick rough and, you know, it, it's nothing could be further from the truth. But it, it, I mean, that's just the case. It, it, it's the number one thing when you go in. You know, the, the 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 mindset going into any consulting gig. You know, save the save the you know elite clubs with some real architectural merit. It's really just don't rebuild anything. You don't have to. You know, all you need to do is take some trees out and mow, and that's your your golf course will be. 85% better. Yeah. And if you want to dig into that last 15%, you know, that's, that's next level stuff, but, but it's shocking how many courses have yet to take the easy 85%. (laughs) 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 You know, one course that does not have that problem is common ground. And I know you, that this is probably a project, you know, after rock Creek that might've also been very close to your heart. It's in your hometown. Um, it was the redevelopment of an existing golf course is near Lowry, Lowry Air Force Base. I think it was called was it called Mira Vista. 
Miravista, yeah. Miravista. And um, talk to us about that. So this golf course, I was there, for, played it for the first time a couple weeks ago, and uh, mm-hmm. it just knocked my socks off how good it was. And it just, it makes you realize how good public golf in America can be when you play a, a place like Common Ground. And it seemed like it was pretty busy. I think I played on a Monday, and when we came off the course around 3 o'clock, it was, seemed packed. Uh, I don't know if that's like that, if it's like that all the time, but it, was, it just sends such a great message. It, um, easy walk nice land not a whole lot of elevation change but there's some some pretty cool my you know minor contour in the land that's you really took advantage of so just tell us about your experience uh, with common ground well the best comment i heard about common ground i think was uh we had our we had our we have this little tournament every year something that we've we've built the called the renaissance cup it's tom's tournament and uh it's it's the highlight of the year for me. I just absolutely love it. And we uh, um, someone made the comment about Common Ground, just that every town should have one of these, you know. And and that is yes. an affordable, well designed course on decidedly average land, um, decidedly average soils, but set a reachable goal that's not you know, doesn't result in having to have a 95 or $125 green fee and see what happens, you know, build something great with not a lot of money, do the best you can do and have the right mindset going in. And, and you could end up with something pretty special. Um, we had been, I forget exactly what was going on, but for whatever reason, um, Don and I, and, uh, Tom had uh, recently played Chicago golf, spent the day there, you know, nice walk around. And then we played. And uh, of course, what a huge, you know, what a huge uh, impactful day that is for anybody. The first, first trip around Chicago golf, but the similarities in terms of, you know, not that dynamic of a piece of ground, um, Slightly bigger in the perimeter at Chicago is, you know, just kind of, just kind of the wall of trees as a background throughout, but, but really just architecture in the middle and just such a good template for anywhere USA, you know, it's like, it's not to say that that property is not, doesn't have anything going on, but you'd be hard pressed to find a property anywhere that if it's if it's unaltered, I mean, it, at the bare minimum, it, you know, you know, land drains, so so there's enough topography to get the water off. Mm-hmm. And, and but really, going that's back to, to like, start with, yeah, going back to the, what we started off talking about is like this is a, this is an example of where you actually did have to build features, Del- deliberate. That's right, and, and that was that's kind of the whole, you know, that that was so the whole. Rainer McDonald thing was was a pretty good solution for common ground in that you know if you're going to make something that you can see from 270 yards away it's got to be pretty deliberate and abrupt and of enough scale that you know it reads on the landscape as something significant um so yeah common ground was great fun in that regard and uh we had a unique approach to it um 
you know, and, and what wasn't unique about it is the same same way we we tackle all of these projects in that we we solicit ideas and work from a bunch of people, and Tom kind of filters through that and and makes the call. So uh, it was great fun to work on, and um, yeah, I have great memories of Common Ground. Still love it. It's the perfect. For public golf, really for any golf, not even just public golf, it's it's sort of like the perfect setup. You have wide open spaces, you have uh, enormous fairways, and then you have these uh, you know bunkers or turns that you know intercede with with sort of like the obvious place that you would want to hit your ball. So you've got to navigate your way around bunkers, and then you get to the greens, and you know you can run your ball up on most greens if you want, if it's dry enough. And then the greens are huge, and there's they're pretty aggressively contoured for you know again a public your typical public golf course but the you know the architectural features there are so interesting and everything just ties in so well together and then you have these views you know you see for 50 miles in different directions it, it's just a, such a um it's just such a unique experience and it, it puts just so much of public golf in this country to shame well i, I think i think it started out it it Part of the reason it's been so well received in my mind is that the the goals in the beginning were basically accurate. You know, they were they were the right goals. Let's just put it that way. Um, I remember Ed Mate basically just you know setting the setting the setting the parameters of the project. You know, they they didn't borrow a bunch of money. They had. Um, Basically, they had four million dollars, and they said, "We have four million dollars." And and uh, I, I mean, I remember it very clearly, you know, kind of in, in the interview room. And Tom's like, "We we still think four million dollars is a lot of money, and we think we can do something pretty cool with that." And it doesn't really take much of a nudge from you know people start getting excited, and you know, let's well, if we had six, we could do this, and if we had eight, we could do that, and then all of a sudden. You know, you got a little bit of you got a little bit of debt tied to the thing, and the expectations get a little higher, such that you have to raise the green fees. And next thing you know, you know, you had something that could be pretty simple and pretty cool with a few more bells and whistles than necessary. And maybe the golf is still really good, but there's just kind of that underlying sense of mm, I don't know. It just feels like just kind of tried too hard, didn't, and I, I'm, I'm not talking architecturally, just, just, just golfers kind of have a comfortable feeling about a place and sometimes not a great feeling about another place. And to me, common ground just feels like it's well, it's, it's just like the balance is right. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not trying to be something it's not, you know, it's a pretty simple piece of ground with some abrupt architecture all the holes are interesting and, you know, it'll yield a good score to better players and somebody that shoots 120 at their, the other two times they played golf in their life can shoot 120 there. So, uh, you know, I think, I think that was a big part of a big part of the success. The, the economy of, of what you did there seems kind of, I'm surprised by that. I, I know. I know it didn't. I heard, I heard it didn't cost a lot of money, but that number is, is fairly low. Does that 
a budget like that, would that travel to different parts of the country or was there something unique about that property that you could do it for that price? Because if you could, if you could do, you know, similar uh, reinvention projects at, at public courses around the country for $4 million, it seems like we're, we're, <laughs> we're in a pretty good shape going forward. Yeah, I, I'd say you'd have to adjust that for inflation. That was 2007, I believe. But, um, but yeah, you know, my brother, who I kind of followed into this business, is kind of a kind of an old sage, and uh, uh, is not, uh, you know, he doesn't uh, he doesn't launch bouquets at all. But um, you know, he knows quite a bit about the golf business, and you know, his theory is you figure out what you need to. You know, grow the grass, get it drained, do all these things, and whatever's whatever's left out of a given budget, that's what you have to shape with. You know, and I think I think that's the approach. That's where the approach. That's when when things go wrong. I think is when there's a there's a piece of land out there, and someone's called in, whether it's a competitive bid or you just end up you know, with the job and there's where things I think get off the rails are someone has a vision for this golf course. And then you kind of map out the vision and you plan out the vision and then you arrive at a price tag. The vision costs this much as opposed to saying, here's our land. This is how much money we're going to spend. What would that golf course look like? And would that be a good golf course? Would that be a course that people are interested in? And, you know, what's the market for that course? How much are the green fees? You know, how much lower can the green fees be on that course? And how does that fit in our business model or our, you know, our our mission statement for the project? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the CGA is a great client in that respect because they're they're not... You know, you got to always make a little bit of money just so that you can support everything else that you're trying to do. But, you know, all they were trying to do was, was, uh, Ed refers to it as a laboratory to, um, you know, try to develop and, and enhance the game. And they hold a bunch of their tournaments there. They just, ex- they're, they're, they have a bunch of great programs getting kids exposed to the game there. So having the, you know, not spending a ton of money to build it and thereby not charging a ton to play it completely fit their, their business model, you know? Yeah. And I'm really interested. I'm really interested in that personally is just kind of like, you know, when I get tired of traveling all over and being gone so much, you know, what, what, what would I love to do? Um, bit of a pipe dream, but I'd, I'd love to own and operate someplace. And, and I kind of think in my head, it's like, well, the safest thing you could do is be the cheapest game in town because, <laughs> you know, you're going to have people show up. And if you kind of start with that premise and work upward and see, well, how, what, how, what kind of interesting golf could I provide at this price point as opposed to, you know, building some, uh, you know, realizing a vision and then hoping people show up at whatever green fee it takes to to get that done. It goes back to this idea of instead of trying to grow the game, trying to concentrate it and, and just extract the, the best elements of it. And Common Ground does that so well. You know, I, 
I love everything you guys do. Like you know, Pacific Dunes is probably my favorite golf course in the world, and I love Bally Neal. But but <laughs> Common Ground might be the most important golf course you've built. Is if you're thinking about golf and what's healthy for golf and what lessons can we take as we move into new economic phases and different demographics, the lessons of common ground are the ones that are going to travel the farthest and be the most resonant. Uh, you know, the other golf courses are, you know, storybook level, but common ground is something that, that everybody can have. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't get to hang out and uh, pick range balls at Ballyneal <laughs> as a, as a 13 year old kid, you know, and 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 you need you know you need you know that's to me that's how you grow the game you don't you don't grow the game by you know making sure that that young people are entertained otherwise on the golf course and and make that part as easy as it can be you just you just have to kind of let it you know you let it happen naturally and you need facilities like common ground where kids can kind of basically loiter for the whole summer mm-hmm. <laughs> like I did yeah. my whole youth. <laughs> yeah. It's like you have to let, let people discover golf on their own. I mean, I think that's, that's, right. that's what it comes down yeah. to. They have that personal sense of discovery will last a lifetime. Uh, but if you're trying to, you know, like promote it and sell it, you know, <laughs> the people just yeah. move on to the next thing that's promoted and sold. Um, yeah. as we, uh, let's start to kind of, kind of wind it down here, but I want to get um, geeky architecturally for a second. One of the my kind of favorite holes at Common Ground is the third hole, which is you know, pe- people might not think that would be one of the the neatest holes out there, but it's just a it's a straight shot par five, dead flat, um, with a boundary on the left, and then there's but there's some really interesting bunkering that that comes into play on the drive, and then on the second shot, and there's a bunker that looks like it's kind of close to the green, but it's probably sixty yards short. And so there's a lot of illusion about it. But what I think about is great is that there's so much to think about on on what should be a very simple three or three shot hole for most people. Uh, but you really have to kind of grind your way through that hole if you want to make a good score. So I, I wanted to ask you in this context, what what are some of the the keys to you that that make a good par five? Because it seems like if you don't it seems to me like if you can't make that second shot incredibly incredibly interesting and challenging and inviting or something do something dynamic with it most of the t- for most players you're left with a hole that's a basically a pitch shot par 3 cuz you know you're just playing you know for that third 80 yard shot into the green and and then how do you make that shot interesting and that's that can be one of the keys to making a, a great par 5 is how you how you set those two dynamics up what that hole does that because you have to really think about that second shot and where you want to place and depending on what the wind does and the angle into that green um it's a pretty complex hole for looking so simple yeah i agree with that and i also agree wholeheartedly that the the toughest part to in my mind anyway the toughest part about making really compelling par fives is to make the second shot interesting for those not trying to knock it on and um you know like that bunker you're referring to is you know right at right at 100 yards which you know everybody kind of has a you know their own kind of go-to wedge range or Mm -hmm. you know what they're you know some guys just want to get as close as they possibly can um others you know might if they can't get up near the green might want to lay back a little bit you know, so that that's one thing you can do. 
Um, the other thing that I think worked out well on that one is uh, some of the cool, <laughs> some of the most interesting bunkering on the golf course is on the left side over that little abrupt ridge. For those who have not seen it, there's a there's an abrupt ridge that kind of runs 40 or 50 yards along the left edge of the fairway leading into the green if you yeah. were going to try to knock it on. It's and weird then, when you go over there and you see what's on the other side of that ridge. It's like, oh, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, you're like, what yeah. the hell? What, how did these get here? Yeah, and, and, and that's kind of the, you know, cause you, because with a single bunker at, at, you know, like at that 100-yard point, you know, you just basically end up chasing a good player <laughs> you know you ch- you're chasing a guy all around the park with a bunker and you're never gonna you know put it wherever you want they're gonna get away you know they're gonna not hit it in there you know right. any, any decent player is just never gonna hit it in that bunker so the third at common ground what what i think really works well is with with the opening to the green is on the left on the left edge you know, and so you can clearly see, you know, where your angle is going to be best to get it in. And there's that abrupt little ridge, which even if you just leave it on that ridge, trying to get that good angle, that's a funky enough shot that that's, you know, mission accomplished. Um, but, you know, it's only, it's only five feet high, this ridge. So, and it's pretty abrupt, so it's easily missed. So, you go left of it and that's when you kind of discover all that, that hidden bunker work that, you know, would often, and I'm sure it still happens where, you know, it was blind. I didn't see it. I ended up in there and you know, that's terrible. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, okay, too bad. That was terrible, but now, you know, so don't do it again. And when there's enough information, you know, you had to know that's not going to be good over there. You know, you know, it's not fairway. So just assuming that you could go left of that and out into the rough and not expect to find something uh, that was going to be a problem. Well, if you didn't know that, then maybe the third hole is a good time for you to learn that about the rest of the course. Yeah. I think what made me kind of realize this uh, about thinking about par fives was I played Gamble Sands a few months ago. And, you know, the course is obviously notoriously wide. It's a blast to play. I actually, I really like the golf course a lot. But it, it, the par fives just kind of left me underwhelmed. And I started thinking about why. And it was because I wasn't, I'm not a long enough player to routinely like try to hit my ball onto the green in two shots or even get particularly close to the green. So on the par fives, you know, you, you, know, you hit the ball in the fairway, you have acres of fairway. And you, you know, you, I'm just hitting a hybrid up to some distance, and there, there was nothing really challenging the second shots. There's so much room, so uh, you know, you're sitting there with a with a, a sand wedge or a lob wedge in your hand for the third shots, and the greens are kind of also, you know, not heavily contoured. So basically, the par fives at Gamble Sands are 80 yard par threes to a flat green. So that, that was a real, you know, I thought was a drawback to the golf course. So I'm starting to pay attention now to like holes that really make you kind of mark your ball down the fairway and challenge that second shot. Or if you, if you have a short pitch into the green for your third, then that green, like the third at common ground has some really cool, uh, ridges and contours in them that, you know, you have to work to get your ball close to the hole from that distance. Yeah. I think the other, the other element, just in thinking about 
second shots on par fives, one of the things that's um, kind of gone by the wayside a little bit that used to be found in spades on golf courses throughout America from the from the golden age are just carry bunkers at you know whatever whatever distance is kind of awkward for the club player at that time you know yeah and and now when you you know when you, when you try to introduce something like that it's it's hard because you know you're you're dealing with the mindset that oh this only affects the guy and you know the best players you know not even thinking about that and really it, it kind of you know it it kind of comes back to you know well all the especially for club play, you know, all the, all the 35 year olds will be 55 and 60 one day. <laughs> and, and that those bunkers kind of return to relevance. So when you're not dealing with, you know, the best players and not, not tour length guys, but just, you know, just, just longer hitters in general, um, you know, f- for the average person, it's a lot easier to make the par fives, interesting and i would love to just do more you know more great hazards where if you you know didn't quite catch your tee shot you've got to think a little bit maybe not necessarily in the in the you know in like tilling has version um maybe not quite that uh dramatic every time but but just something that where the choice is get close to the green or play safe and be a lot further away yeah and not just not just the difference between, you know, eighty and one twenty-five, but the difference between eighty and one fifty. Right. Where where the where the consequences are are a little bit greater. Mm-hmm. But it's hard, you know. Guys that are making calls about, you know, what's good and what's not good. A lot of them are pretty well traveled, and they're they're pretty good players. And you know, the the golf pro at Bel Air told me. <laughs> We were just we were just talking about golf one day. He's like, Eric, guys that hit at three hundred anymore are a dime a dozen, and it's true. You know, it's amazing how many average guys, just guys that are golf play a lot of golf, can hit it, can nudge it out there super far, and you know, it's hard to make. It's hard to. You just have to work extra hard at those par fives to make it interesting for players that, you know, can hit it far enough that they're, you know, they're one, they're kind of in a pissy mood because they, maybe they miss hit the drive a little bit and they can't reach the green. So they're not going to get, they're not quite able to feed on the par five. And then the next one, if there's not enough for them to do, then yeah, that, that, that is a problem and, and it's a challenge in building par fives. Yeah. Somehow I missed out on the distance boom. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> yeah. launching 300-yard drives like some of my friends are. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe they're a dime a dozen at Bel Air, but, but you're right. Yeah. Not everybody does it. I'm outside the carton on that. Um, <laughs> all right, so what's the, what's the best modern golf course that you've seen that hasn't been produced by you or Tom or your company? The best or the one that just kind of fits your eye and your taste the most? Boy, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I think it would uh, you know it would fall to the usual suspects. Um, I know that uh, um, I love Bandon Trails. I didn't really work much on 
any of the you know any of the stuff that was done at uh, at Bandon. I made a couple trips during uh, Old McDonald, and I've spent a little time around there. But uh, Brian Slonick was the one who told me, "He's like, man, it's like when I when I get a chance, I, he's like, I just love to play trails." Mm-hmm. And and uh, so I, I I played trails probably as much or more as any of the courses, and I just think I, I just you know, I love that one a lot. Um, I played, uh, it took me 20 years or not. It hadn't been 20 years. It hadn't been around that long, but it took me a long time to get back to Rustic Canyon. Um, after an initial, you know, an initial look at it and kind of a hurried round of golf. And I didn't really completely understand the course very well, but, um, while we were working in California, um, my wife is an avid golfer now, so we're like, oh, you know, nice. playing. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah, we, we, we basically played there, you know, probably three or four times in a, in a three week period and, uh, um, really, really gained further appreciation for that course. Um, I mean, there's so much good work happening right now, um, and it has been happening that, that that you're really hard pressed to to you know you shouldn't shouldn't strike out if you're if you're looking for something fun and interesting to play. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sure something something else will. That's will, good. Will pop yeah, no, those, head, those are two good ones. Uh, I think yeah. Bandon Trails has been mentioned before. That's the first mention we've gotten for Rustic Canyon. So. Um, you broke some new ground there. That's good. <laughs> um, so you 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 do are you were involved in in restorations and Tom's involved in restorations too. It, it, at some point in fifty or seventy years, maybe sooner, uh, there'll be people who are going around and and they'll probably make a name for restoring uh, Tom Doak and Renaissance Golf golf courses. Now, in the last thirty years, we've learned a lot about the architecture of the 1920s and the architects and we our respect and admiration and understanding of that style of architecture and that period of architecture has gone from you know like 20 percent to 120 percent we know what was built and a lot of what was thinking and what needs to be done if you can distill this is a tough question but what will a future restoration artist need to know fundamentally about the way tom and you built golf courses during your period that will help them restore your courses. It's um, a good question. I, I think I think the uh, that that generation will be um, much better equipped just because their record will be so much clearer. There will be so much more information to work from first and foremost. But if there's anything that I hope people would take away from anything that we've done, I, I wouldn't speak for Tom, but. Uh, I certainly would apply it to the, the courses that I've worked on uh, for him, is that Tom is he's a pragmatist. And, you know, a lot of the decision-making that, that happens just, just has a lot to do with, you know, the realities on the ground and... and how people are playing the golf course, why they're playing the golf course, when they're playing the golf course, um, and just kind of understand, you know, he, he's been such a prolific writer. It shouldn't be hard for people, for people to, uh, 
Uh, it should be expected <laughs> that they understand that's true. that. He's left b- the blueprints behind, basically. Yeah, but he's he's a pragmatist, and he doesn't, you know, the 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 opening day version of these holes are the culmination of you know the the work of a lot of people, and um, you know the art part is certainly important, and we put a lot of work into into that, but. You know, he would also appreciate the fact that, you know, look, over time, this has changed and that has changed. And, um, you know, in, it's, it's funny because with our approach, you know, I've been luckily, lucky enough to be involved um, recently at, at San Francisco. And basically, you know, Tom's stance there is, you know, if it wasn't there... This you've decided. This is your mission statement. This period of time, the way the golf course was, and if it wasn't there, then you know we're not going to do a bunch of things to justify uh, altering it just because somebody thinks it's a better idea. Um, and then, by the same token, I think Tom would uh, want people to take a pragmatic view of some spot that's just repeatedly trouble, and if it for. After four or five swings out of it, at it, it's just not working, and it's you know it 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 needed to be done slightly differently. Then he would probably accept that, mm-hmm. not be too fussed about it. Eric, this time has flown by. Uh, <laughs> I told you it would. I, I really wanted to ask you about St. Patrick's. I know you were in uh, Ireland recently. Should we save that for another time, or do you or do you want to uh, get into that briefly before we check off? Uh, it would be it would be hard to be brief, and uh, it's early enough that um, there's quite a bit quite a bit of uh, excitement about it on our end. But uh, yeah, that one might go on for a little bit. But I imagine uh, working at, working in Ireland is has would it will has been and will be a, a career thrill. I mean, that's pretty, in, and especially in in the type of land that you'll you're working in. I mean, that's a rare opportunity. It is, and and anybody that's been doing this any amount of time, I think, has a good understanding that that properties like that are finite in the world, and you know the it's not true what people say about you know the you know just in life opportunities are you know there's always opportunity X Y Z. While that may be true, there are a finite number of sites like this to to have any opportunity to work on and and uh, from that standpoint i could not possibly take this project more seriously just because i know how valuable the opportunity is yeah it's precious and and you know we owe it to we owe it to the rest of the people that do this to to not uh stuff it up (laughs) I don't. I don't know that that would be possible, but it's good to know that that you see the see the uh, importance of it. It'll be and it'll yeah, and it'll be it'll be fun to watch and see how this uh, St. Patrick's project near Rossapena uh, develops. Indeed, Eric, great talking to you. Thanks for doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Derek. I enjoyed it very much. He's one of the best. That's Eric Iverson. We finished up the conversation talking about the third hole at Common Ground, the par 5, and Eric was talking about this uh, feature that he put in, these sort of hidden trench bunkers that reside just short and left of the green, uh, but they're hidden behind this 
this sort of like serpentine uh, grassy mound and you can't see the bunkers until you hopefully don't hit over there or when you're kind of over in that direction, you're kind of like, wow, <laughs> didn't know that was there. So if you want to take a look at that feature, I've included a photo of it in the show notes. Also, before we go too much further, we, we talked about uh, a couple of things early in the, in the episode. One was Eric's talk about how he, you know, he didn't agree with the whole concept of grow the game, and we discussed that a little bit. And I was talking about uh, the importance that, in my opinion, that of, of golf, focusing more on the game itself, the architecture, the experience of playing golf in a small way in a more concentrated and refined way, you know, and, and to retract and to, to shed so much of the commercialism that surrounds the game and, and the gadgetry and all that. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point out someone who wrote about this much better than I could explain it or than I could write about it. He's an, arch- he's an Irish architect named Ken, Ken Kearney or Ken Carney. I'm sorry, Ken, I'm not sure the exact pronunciation of your last name. But he wrote something and posted on Twitter called Shrink the Game, and uh, it's really a great read, and I've included a link to it in the show notes. I I encourage you all to go and check that out. It's short, uh, just really concise and and well done. Uh, So thanks, Ken. Please check that out. Also, I included a link to Jason Way's article, Language Matters, and it's a really interesting breakdown of the terminology that we use in describing golf course architecture and the matrix of minimalism and naturalism and how those two concepts uh, should be defined and intersect. So click on that link in the show notes as well. I did intend for us to spend a lot more time talking about St. Patrick's in Rasapena in Northwest Ireland. It's a project that uh, Renaissance Golf and Tom Doak and Eric Iverson, I believe, is the lead there. They uh, began construction earlier this summer and they'll probably be over there most of the rest of this year and then maybe finish it up before growing, maybe next spring, you know, that's a loose timetable. Don't hold me to that. But the point is, uh, they're getting started on this really fascinating, dynamic project, uh, a rare opportunity, as Eric said, and the, the setting for this golf course is spectacular. If you've never seen pictures of Rasa Penna, you should Google those. Um, it just, you know, typical Irish dunes, big heaving grass covered dunes right on the sea. Gorgeous. So uh, I think there's just going to be, there's going to be a tremendous amount of anticipation to mark how this project progresses over the next year or so. And I know that Tom and, and Eric and, and everybody who's working on this are, are just thrilled to have this really rare opportunity to build a true links course in Ireland. I could have talked to Eric for another hour. Uh, I hope to have him back on sometime. We, you know, as you can tell, we really touched on like two golf courses. We could have spent an equal amount of time talking about any other of the courses he's been involved with. It's a rare treat to talk to somebody like him who's been all over the world and touched so many of uh, the greatest golf courses of the modern era. But a sincere thanks to Eric for spending his time with us here at Feed the Ball. So as we wrap up really quickly here, please remember to go to TalkingGolf.com to stay up to date with the best in golf podcasts. That's the home of the State of the Game podcast, the I Seek Golf podcast, and the Talking Golf podcast with Connor Lewis. While you're on your phone, click the iTunes app, do a search for Feed the Ball, if you would, and give the show a star rating and possibly a review while you're there. Yes, you can do that on your phone. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Feed the Ball. That's probably enough clerical work for now. Thanks for joining me as always. And uh, thanks to the Sundogs for contributing some music to the show. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios. Adios.